Hello, and welcome to the Original Content Podcast. I'm Anthony Ha. I'm Jordan Crook. And Daryl Etherington is getting another haircut this week, so he will not be joining us. Um, he but is next still week, co-host of the podcast will <laughs> yes. return. Uh, he, I mean, he had a very good excuse for missing a couple of episodes, which was his honeymoon. He has a less good excuse this week, which is South by Southwest, which Boo. I don't know why he would do that, but it's fine. It's fine. Do you want to hear a funny um, anecdote for South by Southwest? I feel like by the time we publish this, it won't be a secret anymore. Okay. So I, Betaworks, which is now, this. Uh, let's go all the way back. I used to write about Foursquare and Swarm all the time, Dennis Crowley's mm-hmm. company. Now Betaworks has invested in his new company. And then he said, hey, do you remember Gowala? Do you want to meet Gowala founder? And I was like, sure. Gowala, for those of you who don't know, was the OG Foursquare and competitor to Foursquare that didn't quite pull it off. So then I met Josh Williams, who's the founder of Gowala and who's relaunching it. Yeah, Daryl's story on that ran this morning as we recorded. Oh, okay. So it's not a secret at all. It all ties together. Relaunching Gowala at South by Southwest, which is where Foursquare launched like 12 years ago or something. And everything old is new again. And TechCrunch is now writing about the relaunch of a location check-in app that launched at South by Southwest. Isn't that wild? It's a beautiful circle. It is. It's so virtuous. Anyway. I mean, it's it's funny, too, because I feel like the whole idea of, oh, we're going to launch a cool, fun social app at South by Southwest is itself just such a huge throwback. Totally. And there's been so little movement and social. And I just love that like anyone is willing to just keep throwing their body against the wall of location based social. Solomo, as they say. (laughs) Um, And so, I mean, one day it'll, it'll stick. I, I believe we'll figure out if we can find a business model for it. But anyway, I just thought it was so funny that I was, like 10 years later, my life is completely different. And I'm sitting there talking to a founder who's like, yeah, we're going to launch our location app. At- I mean, it's good. I've been playing with the test flight. It's fun. I like Gowala, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it also, it does feel like social media is suddenly like way up in the air in a way that it didn't feel for a long totally. time because of like Twitter imploding, the rise of TikTok. And suddenly you're just like, oh shit, like. Who and like knows, the death like, of Facebook. Now. I mean, Facebook right. isn't dead, but like, let's be Things real. Are not it's great. Like boomers only at this point. And yeah, there's a rena- renaissance afoot, I think, for social. Indeed. Um, well, let's uh, let's move into our review, which yeah. is... <laughs> uh, I figured I'd get ahead of you because I feel like if we just kept time at it at some point, oh, you'd yeah. just be like, I'm bored of this. Forever. Let's get into our reviews. So <laughs> just beat you to the punch. <laughs> So we're going to talk about Breakpoint and Full Swing, which are two new-ish documentary series on Netflix. And they're both from the production company that made Formula One Drive to Survive. I haven't seen uh, that show, but my sense is they're kind of like very, very similar formats. And in both cases, it's the idea of let's take this sport that, you know, certainly has its followers, but is not a sort of basketball football level popular sport in the u.s and let's kind of explain and recap and make it sort of dramatic to to newcomers basically the past season yeah i mean i think it's um 
I think there's something really clever about it. Formula One obviously was the the first and popularized it. And that's relatively easy to do because we're talking about a sport that has a lot of kind of like, if you actually watch a race with no context and you don't care about anything, particularly like four years ago when it first came out, Mercedes won every race. You didn't really know they're wearing helmets, they're in cars. So you're not getting to know the drivers in any way or the team principals in any way, but you know, they're racing cars. So like at a bare minimum, it's somewhat interesting and arguably more interesting than NASCAR, which is a hugely popular American sport, right? Because in formula one, they're going faster and they're going around different tracks in NASCAR. They go around a big circle over and over (laughs) and over again. I don't, I still don't understand how people care about it. Um, I think the key to this format that is true in breakpoint and full swing is not just kind of dramatizing the highlights of the, the, the narrative of these sports, right? Like the kind of the stories that play out, but also just getting to know and getting a feel for the athletes themselves. And it's amazing what, you know, 20 minutes basically will do for a human being to either form a taste or a distaste for another human being. And you just, you don't have to see much. They don't have to share their life story. They don't have to share their full opinions on politics or anything that might feel like it has a lot of gravity. They just have to, you know, love Mac and cheese or, you know, be a, a generally funny person or be humble or be arrogant or whatever. And you're like, okay, I have a feel for this person and now I care about their their successes and failures and and then you're drawn into the sport itself and you find yourself I mean I watched Drive to Survive and am now watch every Formula 1 race in the wow. last 4 years. I like I love it. It's one of my favorite sports and then I watch Drive to Survive at the end of the regular season and I get a recap of all the kind of like behind the scenes stuff that was happening. And it's a delightful experience. And so I think they're trying to do that for tennis and golf as well. So the for- the format for both of them essentially is it usually focuses on one, maybe two tournaments per episode. And they pick usually like two people, one or two people they're going to follow in that tournament. And then the way they set it up is instead of starting at the tournament, it usually kind of is like, great, let me tell you about who this player is. Let me tell you their life story. And then let me set it up so they have a lot of at stake in this tournament and then by the time you get to the tournament, you're like, oh, like this is the person who I like want to win. Yeah, it's a fabulous way to do things. I it you know, the first time that I saw this format of kind of storytelling of a big thing, right, with many players and many constituents was actually a documentary called World War Two in Color that came out mm. a few years ago. And I thought it was so great because I remember learning about World War II in history class. And basically your teacher takes you, I mean, I don't know about today, maybe education's better or worse, who the fuck knows. But like, you know, you go chronologically. I went chronologically with World War II, which means that you're jumping countries and stakeholders all the time because different kind of dominoes are falling chronologically, which means you you struggle to see the grander context for each individual thing. And I remember the Pearl Harbor episode started, they they went back 75 years in Japan to talk about the kind of like general political situation that was happening in Japan to get you to understand how Japan could enter this war and why. 
And I just thought, man, that's fucking genius, you know? And so this show does a really good job of kind of like zeroing in on one plot line, basically one main character, one plot line and saying, here's all the things that have happened around this person, maybe 10 years back, maybe 10 months back, maybe 10 days back. But here's the pieces that you need to know of why this epic moment in sports was epic to begin with, why it wasn't just like this little tiny moment of one rally or one putt or one race. It was a it was a turning point for some reason. Yeah. And I part of the context in terms of how I watch these shows is that, I mean, I'm not a huge I, most most regular listeners are probably know I'm not a huge sports professional sports fan in general. And in as much as I care about sports, it's really just about tennis. And so like with Full Swing, the golf show, I knew nothing. I had zero context for anything. And definitely at first was kind of like, I don't care. <laughs> but like as it goes, by the end of the first episode, like I was on the edge of my seat, really invested in the outcome of this tournament. And and it was the same with uh, episode two. And like, I think they do a great job of, I mean, I don't know that you necessarily become a fan of this person for life, but at least for the duration of this, you know, 40 to 50 minute episode, you are totally invested in their story and in the outcome of the game. They also do a pretty good job in both shows of in the first episode, they'll just like break down. Here's how like the mechanics here's work. the basics. And, yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's the very bare minimums, but it's basically just like, when you see this, when we show you the score, you will understand if this person is doing well or not. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's not, what's interesting is that, and this is true in Drive to Survive. It felt very true in Breakpoint. I have no idea why they started with Kyrgios. And it's true in Full Swing that there's not, you're not always rooting for your main character. Sometimes, yeah. I mean, and it's the affinity, but also the kind of like, again, distaste or dislike of some of these people that also can drive it, you know? And I'm sure that my yuck is someone else's yum. You know, mm -hmm. like I don't particularly like uh, what's his name, the Brock. Do you uh, did you watch that episode in for the golf? Brooks Kepka. Brooks Kepka. Like, could do without any day of the week. Don't not a fan, right? And like his kind of like failure on the PGA Tour. I was like, <laughs> good. You know, and I hope you fail at live too. Like I just <laughs> not a fan. Um, and this, you know, that's true in I, I the Formula One guys. You know, um, and I'm not a big fan of Kyrgios either. I think he's like brings dishonor to the sport. Yeah. But well, that's interesting because I think that, um, and and I should say that I have not watched the entirety of Full Swing. I just watched a couple of episodes to get a flavor of it. But like, I did see the Brooks Kapka episode, and. I think that in both the Brooks case and Curios in Breakpoint, the show still tries to make them sympathetic. Like if you bring in this other stuff, you're kind of like, oh, like, I don't like this guy. Um, oh, they're not villainizing them for right. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and particularly with, with uh, Brooks, I mean, I definitely was like, what is going on with this guy's hair? What is going on with his house? And things like that. Um, and I mean, like all these players they kind of he kind of dresses like a douchebag but um i mean he dresses like a golf pro um yeah so like there's a lot of things that like superficially make me not like i don't think like he and i would get along in real life um but like 
in the context of the show, the main thing you know about him is just that he's having, that he was this amazing player and then it like fell off a cliff and he's like trying to come back. And so for that episode, I was like, yeah, I really hope he comes back. Um, he doesn't. By the way, we should say we're going to, because this is all sports stuff that happened last year, we're going to feel comfortable spoiling it. We're not going to go oh, out yeah. and spoil it, but it's, um, you know, the, you're not, yeah, we're, we're not going to hide not news, what happened. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think, I think what's interesting as well about both of these shows is that they're telling the story, not only of these individuals, which is what hooks you, right? Like that's the hook you, you start to care about someone or see the context and then you start caring about their success and failure but it, there's always a broader context of the evolution of the sports themselves and like you i mean you're a tennis fan right like mm -hmm. serena was given a lot of shit a, 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 over the course of her career for having a bad attitude or throwing tantrums or whatever they might be and her kind of constant rebuttal was the men have been doing it for 50 years. What are you talking mm -hmm. about? Nothing I've ever said is worse than whatever, you know, Joe Blow that came before me. And then there was the whole thing about the cat suit versus wearing a skirt, right? And I think Curios as an opening episode is meant to set the tone of this could be a high octane spectator sport that isn't supposed to be so highbrow sipping tea with my pinky right. up. And will tennis do that? Like, will the sport of tennis and those who kind of like regulate it and oversee it evolve alongside some of the players? And the same is true of golf. I mean, live is meant to change the format of golf in a way that now, do I agree with live? Do I support live? No, but. Maybe you could explain all of what Liv is. Sure, sure. Okay, so this all happened in the last couple of years, basically. But golf has traditionally been run by the PGA Tour Association or whatever it's called. The PGA, yeah, uh, Professional Golfers Association. And they have set it up in a way where uh, a bunch of players come out and qualify for a tournament and then half of them go home if they don't make what is called the cut. Um, and they don't get paid either, which means that the golfers tend to choose to compete in tournaments. They're, they're not all required. It's their choice which tournaments they go to because there's a cost associated with going. And if they don't think they're mm -hmm. going to play well, they don't have to go, which means that it would be like if the Jacksonville Jaguars or maybe a team that's even worse, right? Like if if the uh, Kansas City Chiefs decided like, eh, we're good. We're not going to like make money on this NFL game. And, uh, you know, the o the Oakland Raiders and some other garbage team could come and play instead. Right. You want to see the best people go <laughs> against the best people. That's what right. spectator sports are about. And Liv basically said, well, we'll we'll make it a team sport. We'll team people up. We'll pay them no matter what. We'll pay them outrageous amounts no matter what to come out and play. So they're kind of trying to change the format of the sport to make it a more appealing spectator sport. However, it's funded by the Saudi government, basically. And this was all kind of in the wake of Jamal Khashoggi, et cetera. Um, and the PGA Tour said, if you go and sign a contract with Liv and play in their tournaments, you cannot play on our tour and drew a line in the sand which is just problematic. The whole thing is pretty problematic for the sport again, but 
it begs the question of is a sport going to be dragged kicking and screaming into evolution that's best for everyone or is it going to wake up and do it on its own and i think if you watch all of full swing you kind of get a sense for how all of that comes together toward the end but um it's an int- it's a fascinating plot line in and of itself that if you didn't care about individual players and you couldn't care about the drama of golf as a sport then you would never care about kind of this broader story of the the pillars of it being tinkered with right but then you do and it becomes really fascinating and interesting right yeah so with the lift stuff um so one of the things that that both of these shows have is i think they have arrangements with the major tournaments so they can really um go behind the scenes, show you a lot of footage. Um, do they do this? So, so far with full swing, I've seen a number of PGA tournaments where they go kind of go in depth. Do they do the same with some live tournaments? They basically, no, they don't go in depth with any live tournament, but they do show live footage. So they show okay. the guys at a live event, you know, warming up or whatever, but you get the sense that they have some sort of deal with PGA where they can show live insofar as, being able to tell the story without caring about the outcome of any live tournament. So they never show someone going and winning a live tournament and how like tell the storyline of that. They just kind of, yeah, this is what it looks like. This is the guy that's in charge of it. Here are some of the guys that went over and turn coded or whatever. Um, And that's basically it. They're not, they're not showing it as a kind of like narrative arc of who wins and loses or, or the outcomes of those things. And then so on the tennis side, one of the big narratives is more that it's it's not like a structural thing, but it's basically on the men's, particularly with the men's tournaments, it's basically these, you know, giants have been kind of dominating men's tennis for decades at this point. And, you know, Federer's retired and um, Nadal and Djokovic are kind of like, you know, getting on in age. Older. And so there's the question of, can is it finally time for this next generation of men to step into the spotlight? Um, and and that's essentially who the show focuses on from the men's perspective. And and I should say it's both uh, men and women, um, but especially on the men. And and there's I mean obviously there's a moment like that with um, Serena retiring last year too. But I think that hasn't come into focus with the episodes we've gotten so far um, for the women. And it, and it's really fascinating because you just end up getting. A lot of episodes where that 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 center on this idea of like okay like can somebody like finally beat Nadal and the answer is no mostly there there is one really notable exception and that's like that's probably my favorite episode of of the ones released so far they who beat they him split it into two halves it was uh, Taylor Fritz wow at, I think it was at Indian Wells and it's amazing because he. Um, basically has a foot injury before uh, like while practicing for the final. Oh, I and remember everyone the is beginning like, of that. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone's like, you should not, you can't play this final like that. You're, you're, you're going to be basically off the tour for like two months if you do it, because this, this is not, a, this is a serious injury. And he's like, no, no, no. I I'm in the final with Nadal. Like, I don't care if I get like knocked, if I can, if I have to walk off after, one game, but I'm, I'm at least walking onto that court. Um, and then he actually wins it. And it's like the most dramatic thing in the whole show. Um, the, I guess I I was reading about it afterwards and apparently like Nadal was also really injured, which they don't tell you on the show. So it's not like, uh, you know, like they're both 
uh, fighting, I mean, you know, playing with a little bit of a disadvantage, but um, yeah, it's, it's great. And, it, but I think both, one of the things about both shows is that it's not like wa watching, um, you know, an inspirational sports drama where you kind of know that the people are going to win at the end. Like there are episodes that like build up to a big climactic moment and then the main character fails, which mm -hmm. I think is, I mean, it makes it really exciting. It does, definitely. And that's what sports are, right? Like that's right. what watching a game is all about is that you can think and predict and there's a lot of betting platforms that would love for you to predict, you know, kind of what the outcome is going to be or to be biased based on your affinity because maybe they're from your hometown or you really like this player or this coach or whatever. And things just don't, there's some beauty in, you know, in volleyball, we used to say the ball never lies and in racing, they say the stopwatch never lies, but there's some beauty in like almost the fairness of it. I mean, it doesn't always feel fair, <laughs> but in this, like, you can't will your team to win. You can't yeah. write it with a pretty bow at the end. It's sports shit happens. Right. Right. And so, uh, I love that that's a piece of it, that they didn't make every episode kind of end with this glorious moment. Sometimes it just ends in despair. Right. Um, I will say, I just have to say this for posterity, the, the live thing, I won't go too deep into it, but I have to say how much it bothers me that Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson mm -hmm. both said nothing about the more morality basically of mm -hmm. the backers of the, the tournament or the league and both said I just have to think about my family as though they're both not worth like a hundred million dollars each. It just drives me crazy. I mean, we're talking about already existent generational wealth. Basically, if you are smart with investment and have a good financial team with you, that will last for a really long time and likely grow. You know, your kids are going to go to great schools. They're going to make even more money. Your grandkids and your grandkids, grandkids are going to be fine. So to talk about like taking care of my family just really yeah. fucking upsets me. It It's really out of touch. And so I get all of the fucking hate that they've been getting for it. I just think it's bullshit. I, I, that's a very good and well-reasoned argument. I would say the simpler version that the show also provides is just, I've seen Brooks Kepka's house. Like that dude has a lot of money yeah, and he has like a spectacular mansion, like, if that guy says he needs money, like, fuck him. I mean, yeah. specifically, he says he needs to take, like, blood money, essentially, to, to, to support right. him. Like, get out of here. Yeah, no, you have plenty of money. And you could go and do advertisements and sponsorships and all kinds of things if you wanted to. But you're just taking this, like, easy pussy way out of it. And at the detriment of it, I just think it's so 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 out of touch i would have i wished every time that that came up i mean at one point dustin johnson is like net worth comes up of like our winnings 77 million in winnings or something like that in the 70s and they ask him like why are you doing this and he's like oh i just have to think about what's best for my family my grandkids grandkids and the fact that no one's like yeah but like don't you think that the saudi government is bad <laughs> <laughs> basically like what about that what about that part like i just wished for a follow-up question that's like but how do you reconcile that with this right 
And that never comes up. And that really bothers me about it. Um, But I mean, I guess you haven't seen the end of Full Swing. I'll just say like the last episode follows follows Rory, who's kind of the like, it's probably not fair to call him the new tiger, but he, there is no tiger, right? Like there's no new Serena, but he is kind of like the leader, basically. Like he's the one that the other players respect, look up to. He's won a lot. He's got, has a great career. He's still going. And Tiger really loves him too. And basically Tiger and Rory call a meeting, a players only meeting at the end and say like, here's what we're going to do. And they take that as almost like a players union. It's not like a formalized union, but they take that to the tour and say like, here's what's going to happen. We will play together. We promise to have the best talent at these tournaments and we will all show up for them, but you got to do X, Y, Z. And I don't remember what it was, but he's really like has this hero role in the last episode of kind of just like, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to rally people to do the right thing. Yeah. And uh, it was good. It was a really good way to, to end the, I wish that there were more episodes, but if we had to end, that was a great place to do it. That's good. It's interesting because I think this will tie in a little bit when we talk about uh, The Last of Us, because I think one of the big, I mean, obviously, different, but like there's, but there's a thematic thing of like, part of what The Last of Us is about is sort of like, how far will you go to protect the people you care about? Like what kinds of like moral, essentially immoral choices will you make um, to do that? And it's great to have full swing as the example of just like the total bullshit version of that where you're like, actually you had so many other options. Like you're just using this as an excuse to do exactly what you want anyway and just take the most money. Yeah. And I also think that the full swing thing doesn't tell the full or these guys, right. Don't tell the full story, which I expect because I don't think that they have enough self-awareness to do so. But like, I think the truth of it is, not just that they were getting paid large sums of money, but that they're being asked to compete in a different way with less maybe pressure and a bunch of the other guys somewhere else. And they have a chance to feel good about themselves. We're not talking about people that are out here like continuously winning tournaments. Most of them are over, you know, they're, they've peaked already. Yeah. They're not going to come back and win the masters. And, you know, Dustin Johnson is, was the big question mark because he is still, a formidable player who can win. But most of them are basically saying like, yeah, I'd like to win more. You know, I'd like to feel like I'm not a hundredth in this tournament and that I'm in the top five or whatever. And it's really upsetting to me, to be honest, because I grew up playing golf. My dad and my mom are both big golfers. I went to like golf camp as a kid. I, moved away from it because it's an incredibly frustrating sport, but I got back into it over the pandemic. And one of the things that my dad and I always talk about is how golf is such a good facsimile for life. There's like, it's really, really, really hard sport. It's a really hard sport. It's a tiny club face. It's a tiny ball. It's a tiny hole a long way away. And you're expected to do something kind of miraculous with a lot of, um, It takes a lot of practice to be good. You also have to make choices. Like there's a, sorry if this is boring, but there's a hole outside of my mom's house. She lives on a golf course. It's 17th hole. It's one of the hardest on the course. And it goes straight ahead. And then there's a marsh on one side. And 
just like a little dog leg, like a, almost like the Italian boot, the green is kind of on the side there. And so we watch men and women come down this hole all day long. And you normally have to hit it about 150 yards to get it on the green, but you're going over the marsh. And men, nine times out of 10, believe that they can go over the marsh and hit this tiny green. And women, nine times out of 10, will lob it up safely and then chip it onto the green. And there's something, I mean, I'm not saying that all men have are arrogant and all women are clever or whatever, or maybe selling them so short. You look at it any way you want. But again, you're seeing, you're literally seeing the psychological choice of what do you think you're capable of and how close can you come physically to what you think you're capable of. And like the, the joining of reality with your aspirations. And again, it's just so much like life. And so I think it's hard for people whose identity is golf because it's really, really hard. And there's a lot of ways to fail and there's only very few ways to win. And a lot has to be going in your favor, a lot of luck. And I think a lot of these guys that went to live, their identity is tied up in being a champion golfer and live offered offered an opportunity not just to make a bunch of money but to feel relevant yeah i mean i think that ties into sort of maybe one positive and one negative thing i would say about both shows is like the positive is i think they do an amazing job of not just like creating or capturing these narratives going into each tournament but also just sort of conveying a lot of the like mental game and how much like it's really about often when people like lose it's because they sort of defeat themselves because they're like so psyched and like because there's so much pressure and and it gives you this context for things like when like you know Naomi Osaka like needs to take a break from tennis you're like after seeing like breakpoint you're like shit man I I would need to take a break too like this is so intense and I mean it's it's a little bit simplistic but also true of like particularly in tennis they bring up like yeah, man, like I forget exactly the number, but there's so there's X number of people arriving in the tournament, like all but one of them are going to lose. Like that yeah. is one. Brutal. There's one winner out of like hundreds of people. Which and I, I mean, is true in the golf tournaments, too. And it's wild. I mean, watching these these golf tournaments, I when I go out and golf with my dad and they pair us with a random stranger, the pressure I feel to know that a str- one single stranger is watching me swing the club is really a lot of pressure. <laughs> like I can't, it, it, it is a struggle. So to imagine yeah. that there are hundreds, thousands of people following you down the course, watching <laughs> you play against the tightest competition on the hardest courses with this one putt to determine whether you, you win or lose, basically. I mean, it's got to be just oppressive. Yeah. So, so they do that well. I think the one thing, and I, I know Breakpoint has been criticized by tennis fans a little bit for this, is that they don't capture as much as just the actual kind of like physical quality of the game. Like often, like when you see points or shots, like it's really cut down in just a few seconds to, so you know whether it was good or bad. Um, I think that, and I understand that like, again, what the, the thing that's distinctive about both these shows is not capturing the tournament it's capturing everything that leads up to it telling this story but i wish the ratio was a little bit more in terms of like say showing long rallies showing you know like really mm-hmm. impressive points and like understanding like like particularly so like with full swing because 
you don't see enough of the golf. I don't necessarily know when something's a really impressive shot or not. I mean, I can tell often when like there's something that sh- that's easy and then they have, they fuck it up. But like, you yeah. know, for those longer drives, I'm like, I don't know. Is that impressive? Hard to tell, but like, I totally. guess it's- Well, it's like, they always say, isn't there that meme about like, I wish that they would do a pre-Olympics that would show amateur people doing what <laughs> these people are doing so that we have a baseline to measure yeah. it on. Tennis and golf are two where the golf, you know, the gulf between a college football player and an NFL football player is big, but it's not massive, right? And the worst NFL team would beat the best college team pretty regularly mm-hmm. over and over and over again. But you wouldn't you wouldn't be like, whoa, there are a bunch of doofuses on one side, right? And tennis, I mean, amateur tennis versus professional tennis is a totally different fucking thing. It's not the same sport. And same thing with golf. I mean, the fact that they're finishing tournaments or finishing a round of 18 holes, three, four, five under. I mean, most people play double bogey golf. They finish with a score of like 100, maybe more, right? Great players finish in the 80s. And these guys are finishing in the 60s. You just don't, it's hard to process, right? Like, yeah, I completely agree with you. There's something missing in like the physicality and the work it takes. You know, they talk about a thousand shots in golf. He's like, I just got to go hit a thousand balls. Mm -hmm. And I record the, you know, I go to the, (laughs) I go to the driving range and, and, you know, anything could happen. You see a pro finish at the driving range and they have a perfect kind of square mat of divots that they've made one after the other. Oh, I mean, wow, it's just, okay. it's not just to do the perfect shot once. I can do that. You give me a thousand balls. I could, <laughs> I could hit one perfect shot. Can you do it 90% of the time or 95% of the time or 97 or eight? I mean, that kind of consistency is wild. And so. Yeah, they they don't. Yeah, I agree with you. They don't do a good job of showing just how hard it is to do what they're doing. Right. Well, do you have any final thoughts on Breakpoint or Full Swing before we move on? Oh, man, I just like went off. So I'm good. (laughs) No, that was great. Uh, So let's talk about The Last of Us. The most recent episode is When We Are in Need. This is the episode before the finale. And as with all our Last of Us recaps, we're going to spoil it up. We'll do a, a full season review next week and, and there'll be a spoiler friendly section there. But um, let's let's just dive into what happened in When We Are In Need. Um, yeah, some, sh- some shit happened. Yeah. I mean, I'll just say off the top, I think this is probably the best episode of oh, the season. Um, or it has to be like top three. I thought, uh, yeah, basically the the summary is that Ellie is still pr- trying to care for Joel, who is really looking dire, as Anthony mentioned last, last week or the week before, sewing him up with an unclean needle did not turn out They well. addressed that. That's good. I appreciated that. He, he got an infection and he's not doing well. So he stopped bleeding, but now he probably is going to die of sepsis if nothing is done. And she's trying to hunt. Uh, So she's out hunting. And this group uh, of basically Christians, kind of culty Christians, uh, finds her. And she disarms them, which is good for her. And she ends up trading kind of the buck she shot for antibiotics. Uh, And she gets back. She treats Joel. But they've come after her 
and they're going to find her. And so they capture Ellie and Ellie realizes that this is a pretty dangerous group of people to be with. They're eating their dead basically and starving and pretty dark group. And so she, you know, all the while Joel is healing and he realizes, Hey, she needs my help. I'm going to get up and march toward her and save her. And ultimately Ellie saves herself. She escapes from her kind of little cage. There's a fire that starts and she ends up killing the guy who came after her. And Joel only finds her after she's kind of escaped and saved herself. And again, I thought it was a wonderful, it sounds like you disagree. Do you not think this was a great episode? I mean, I I should say that also, I think my, um, my response to it was colored a little bit um, by this. I follow this guy on Twitter, Sean T. Collins, who who reviews the show for Decider. And I think, I mean, in general, he's been a lot more lukewarm on Last of Us than than I have. And, and I think he particularly disliked this episode because he thought the sort of whole, uh, it, it starts to get into like sort of very traditional kind of post-apocalypse, walking dead, uh, zombie kind of territory of just like, yes, you must do terrible things to protect the people you care about. And particularly, I think the scene where Joel like tortures some of the, um, you know, some of the people from this cult essentially to find out where Ellie is, it, it you know, feels, well, first of all, it's just incredibly unpleasant. And I think it's meant to be right. And I, and I think where I, I disagree with, I, I think, so part of that is just, I think I went into the episode like already a little bit skeptical of of, of it, where it was going to go. Um, and I think that it, I think I'm still sort of sitting with it and not a hundred percent sure where I, where I land. I think it's, it's really well done. I think like the territory that it goes into, I'm kind of like, ah, I don't know. I mean, I just like, you know, I, you know, regular listeners of the show uh, know that I love Station Eleven, which is a very different show, but like is like also has like this sort of post is this post-apocalyptic show. And it's much more about this idea of it's a much more hopeful look at what life might look like. And this is much bleaker, which is fine. I mean, that's just, um, you know, that, that, that they're doing very different things, but I think coming down on that message of just like, Hey man, sometimes you got to like, just fucking murder people to protect the people you, you care about. I feel like it's something that's been done in these kinds of shows before. Um, but that's it. I mean, it is a really effective episode. I will also, here's another hot take is I think actually the fact that this group is cannibals is like actually really low down on the list of the things, the horrible things they do. Like, I feel like actually oh, yeah. in that situation, I'm like, cause it's, as far as we know, they're not killing spe- people specifically to eat them. It's just when someone dies, they're going to make use of that flesh when they run out of other food. And I'm like, I don't like that. I'm not like pro that, but like in that situation, I don't actually think it's like totally unforgivable. No, I don't either. That doesn't bother me. I mean, it's like bothersome, but it doesn't like, you know, I, I just think, yeah, maybe it's pretty common a trope for in a post-apocalyptic survival based universe for people to make choices around their morality that would be different than ones that we choose today. So maybe there's something common about that, but also like, I just always put myself, I I think, okay, well, what if I was in that situation? There's no limit. The only reason you have to keep walking the earth and to not Mm -hmm. give up entirely 
is the love you have for other people. So I don't think if that was the only thing keeping me upright, that there's much that I wouldn't do. Like, you know, and, and so I think it's common for a reason because that is the, the core conflict of like surviving. And I think at least the last of us, I mean, I loved reading station 11 and I liked that show, but I do think it's a little bit like silly in its optimism, to be honest of like the fact that there's even a symphony that travels around is kind of fucking stupid to me. Like I get on board with it, but like, no, I don't think that that's what we're doing. Maybe if there's some sort of equilibrium around food, et cetera. Okay. But that's not where we are in this world at all. And I think that the last of us takes the time that it does to show the joy of connecting with another human being whether it's Bill and Frank or Ellie and Joel as they form their bond or Sam and Henry or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The fact that they show that I feel lifts this out of kind of like walking dead, et cetera, territory, because they do that so artfully that it reminds you all the time. Yeah, I'd do that. I'd do that shit too. I imagine we'll probably get into this a little bit more too next week, but I think to me, part of the argument against that is that like, you, you could argue that, yes, this is sort of a more realistic look at what this kind of, you know, world would be like. Um, I think that my counter would be that neither of these is realistic, right? They're both fantasies. And so in sort of asking, like, why the way you construct the world is sort of stacking the deck no matter what. And so, like, they wanted, you know, the, the creators of this show wanted to explore a darker world with more difficult moral choices, Um and that's fine. I, I guess it's, I don't necessarily think that's more realistic. I think it's just the world they set up. And, um, and so again, like I said, I'm still, still wrestling with it, but. So wait, I, I want to understand the alternative, right? Like it's the dead of winter. They're up North. Right. Is there, I mean, Jackson, right. Is the alternative mm-hmm. right. a group of people, but arguably they kill most of the people they come across. And if Joel wasn't Tommy's brother, right? even the kind of like utopian socialist communist community that has electricity and watches movies and, and has enough food to go around is also killing people to keep what they have. So like, I just don't, I want to better understand the, alternative to this episode where joel doesn't torture them basically because ellie kills her dude out of self-defense so i give that to her 100 percent. if a guy's trying yeah. to rape me or attack me i'm gonna kill him but right. joel is the one that's questionable in that situation he wants to go rescue ellie he thinks she's in danger these guys have come in they're the ones who have put her in danger and he needs to figure out where she is like go what does that actually look like in anyone's that isn't what happened i think my argument is less that like Joel did something wrong in that situation. Um, although I would say that, I mean, you know, parenthetically, I think there's there's a lot of evidence that actually torture doesn't work in actually getting reliable information. Although he he sets it up in a way that's a little bit more effective where you're like, okay, that might actually work. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it's it's more about saying essentially that the reason you set up a fictional situation like that is because you want to explore your character doing like, really dark brutal stuff that's 
that's the story you're trying to tell. So it's not like I'm saying that like. You're saying like they could have had Joel track Ellie's footprints and not yeah, ever exactly. come across these guys to begin with. Right, exactly. Or that he just, I mean, and again, it's not saying that I don't, I'm against, like, I, I believe that there, that if the apocalypse came there, you would not have to use force and we could all just, you know, be this perfect utopian community. But it's like choosing to set up the situation where you have to make these like really brutal, violent choices, including torture and murder, like that I'm not crazy about as an artistic choice, as opposed to like a moral choice. Um, but again, I think, like I said, I'm still sort of wrestling with how I feel about that overall with the show. I mean, one thing I will say for the show is that it's not trying to glamorize any of these things at all that like, it's not like, boy, isn't Joel so fucking sure the hero. So great. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it really like, and particularly you talk about Ellie saving herself, which she definitely does, but like, that the way those scenes are shot are like really upsetting and not just upsetting for the viewer, but like, like you can tell that Ellie's like genuinely, she's like covered in blood and like really, really traumatized by what she's done. And so, you know, even though Joel doesn't save her physically, part of what that final scene does is it sort of, I mean, again, we don't, I don't, I don't know exactly what mental and emotional state Ellie's going to be going into the finale, but like, there is this sense that he's kind of like saved her emotionally of being like, Hey, like you're still here. I'm still here. I got you. Even though all this horrible, insane shit happened. Yeah. Yeah. And I get it. I mean, I think, I think you're right that they show, they, they show the kind of like pound of emotional flesh that comes with these choices whether you agree with them putting them in these situations or not, they're not um, heroes. You don't feel like, oh, yeah, we're safe now. Everything's good. I think you show they show the cost of them. And. Yeah, I mean, I think that they do. I will say in this episode, the kind of like darkness that comes from what's his name? What's the redhead? Oh, gosh. Monster. Um, wait, so there's. Uh, David and James. So David, David. Is, the, is the leader. He's the preacher. And then James is his uh, sort of second. And James leader. was actually the voice of Joel in the games. Right. Um. So that was weird. But David, man, that is a scary motherfucker. And I think they did a really good job with the details and the arc of the episode of showing you just how deeply his darkness runs you know we start with him being more of a comfort then we hear that he doesn't really believe in god at all you know and that he's like a former school teacher who's just trying to lead a group of people and basically have the power in the power dynamics of a community of people and he's using religion to do so and then there's a the scene where he hits the girl and he gets his food and he has so much more food than everyone else was, that was so amazing. that was such a clincher for me where i was like oh what a fucking prick <laughs> he has like a mountain of meat and everyone's just like but he's not asking for it broth. somebody already knows to give it to him oh yeah and you assume that that's the dynamic all the time right um but yeah the the level of control he has over these people is pretty wild um yeah, the actor who plays David, Scott Shepard, he's amazing and he's so like charming and over time scary. But even at the end when you're just like, yeah, this guy's a monster, you're also like, oh, no, he thinks 
he's doing what he has to do. Yeah, I'm good. You don't know how good I am. <laughs> yeah. And As um, he, like a seemingly tries to rape her, right? Is that the indication that he is going to? Yes. Yeah, he's going to rape her. Abuse her. Yeah. Right. Well, so at, the, at first he's like, I'm going to make you my child bride. And then when she breaks his finger and rejects him, he's like, I'm going to murder you for food. And then he's like, oh, I'm going to. Then when that kind of goes awry and and his assistant is dead and like the lodge is burning down, he's like, no, 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 actually, I'm going to rape you. I think I'm just going to rape you. And then we'll got a lot of plans. Yeah. Yeah. But all of them are dark. He has a violent heart, as he says. Right. Um, Which wasn't in the game. And, you know, I didn't remember any of this from the game. Like if you if you asked me to. uh tell you the story of the last of us game part one i would have left all of this out it didn't click in there could be a million reasons for that that have nothing to do with the quality of the storyline like just how rushed i was or distracted i was playing but um as it was happening it all kind of came back to me and it was really good there was a lot that was like very spot on and scene for scene and there was stuff that was obviously layered and added in I again think that it was one of the best episodes of the season because it gives you a an emotional release, particularly as someone who has played the game. You're kind of in the game, you're kind of auto bonded as playing as Joel to Ellie, whether he's resistant mm-hmm. to it or not. You kind of like you love Ellie. She's funny, she's smart. You just like want her to succeed. And so by playing Joel, even though it takes him some time to get there, you feel like there's a bond between Joel and Ellie because you're Joel (laughs) and you love Ellie. And so in the show, it's a little bit harder because Joel is kind of so resistant to it. And so is Ellie in different parts. They're kind of at each other's throats so, for so much. And there it's this very tough love that they have between them. And so this moment of kind of the, it, over really the past few episodes where Ellie decides to stay and take care of Joel, Joel heals and comes to her in this moment where she's probably at her bleakest. And to have that moment for him to call her baby girl, which he had reserved for his daughter, Sarah, and to hug her and for them to look into each other's eyes and just really kind of commit to their love and their bond just was so, especially as a juxtaposition to this guy who kind of said he wanted to love her, but was really trying to take from her and hurt her Um, to have basically the same aged guy say, I love you, baby girl. I got you, baby girl. And for her to feel so safe and good is just, it it's the hit that we were looking for of this drug, this last of us drug. You know, <laughs> uh, I guess the last question I'll ask you is, is obviously, I think one of the recurring themes as we've talked about the show has been, you felt a little bit like, why are they rushing to cover the whole game, the whole first game in one season? Um, now that, you know, there's only one episode left are, do you feel like, okay, like I'm excited for the finale or like, oh crap, they've gonna like, they've got so much ground to cover and they've got so much stuff to squeeze in. No, I mean, I'm going to try to do this without spoilers. I think that they did a good job basically putting most of the whole game into this season. I think there were ways to extend it if they wanted to. Lots of them. But 
fine. That's a choice they made. And I think they're sticking the landing. I think what worries me is that there's a time chunk between season one and season two or episode one and episode two, basically on the game. There's Hmm. time that passes where nothing happens or little happens and kind of the beginning of the game gives you the context on what's happened. And there's also some big things that happen pretty early in the second game. And so I'm just concerned for season two, I think okay. more than anything else. I'm concerned about how that is going to work and what are they going to build filler in and kind of the big things that happen early in game two are going to happen as the finale of season two. And they make that a little bit longer and stretch that into two seasons out of one game, or are they going to try to stay by the letter of the law here? And in which case I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to go. I I'm interested more than I am worried, but yeah, I've been talking to people who play the games with this. And the second game is much more divisive regardless, right? I think my sense is that people are going to have a harder time with it. Yeah, I think like the most spoiler-free way that I can describe it is I think people who played the full game came around to it and are good with it. I think it, the second game forces you to, these same questions we're asking about morals, they're easier for us to answer in this season because we know what team we're on. Mm -hmm. And even though they're kind of giving you glimpses of, well, what if you were in, what's her name? The chick who led the the QZ, the, the, uh, no, the Kansas city QZ lady. Like we were against her, Kathleen. but even, yeah, Kathleen, but we were against her kind of automatically, Right. right. Because she was trying to harm Joel and Ellie, but they still do a good job of kind of like forcing you to get some empathy for her. And that will be tur- the volume on that vibe will be turned all the way up to 10 in game two. You are forced to empathize with the person you hate the most, basically. And so I think that's what made it divisive. That's also what made it so fucking brilliant as a video game targeted towards like young men, basically, <laughs> is like, you know, well, it's not all about you, you know, and that's hard to reconcile. So. All right. Well, I am very excited for the finale and we will do a full rundown next week. But in the meantime, if you have thoughts on Breakpoint, Full Swing, or the first seven episodes of The Last of Us, you should shoot us an email, originalcontentpod at gmail.com. That's originalcontentpod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Original Content. And we always appreciate it when you subscribe and leave us a positive review in Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choosing. Thank you so much for listening. Jordan, I'll talk to you later. Peace. 